Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, our space family aboard the crippled Jupiter 2 prepared to make a landing on an unknown planet far beyond our galaxies. A landing that would allow them time to make desperately needed repairs on their spaceship. To learn more about the mysterious surface of the planet below, Professor Robinson had planned to send their environmental-controlled robot down to investigate. Unbeknownst to him, however, the nefarious Dr. Zachary Smith had other plans for the mechanical marvel. We can't let them drop you over the side, can we? You're far too valuable to me right here. But don't you worry. As long as you remember to accept orders from my voice only, we'll be all right. Welcome back, folks, for episode three of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the third broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Island in the Sky. After watching it, I know we're going to have fun reviewing this episode because I think it's a good story. Maybe not as creepy as the last episode, but it's a good story and it has some really great visual sequences. What was your reaction? Well, if you're a member of the uh, I Love to Hate Dr. Smith Club, this is going to be one of your favorite episodes. He really uh, stands and delivers in this episode. <laughs> he sure does. Uh, it's worth mentioning that some of the most exciting parts in this episode, both the live action and FX shots, were harvested from that unaired pilot called No Place to Hide. And that in part explains why during this particular story. The family sort of goes off on their own without Smith or the robot, but let's not get ahead of ourselves for now. Real quickly, I just want to mention for the listeners out there, you and I are both re-watching the series on Blu-ray and DVD. Not everybody has that, and I'm sure Lost in Space is broadcasting and syndication somewhere, but I did find out that right now, and keep in mind we're recording this episode in April of 2018, so if you're listening to this in the year 2100, this may not be true, but uh, all the episodes right now are available on a paid streaming service called uh, Hulu, and uh, they even are offering a chance to see that unaired pilot, No Place to Hide. Yeah, and you could probably uh, get it on Netflix through their uh, DVD, you know, having them mail you the DVD of them. If they had The Invaders, I'm sure they probably have Lost in Space, and I, I pretty much saw all The Invaders episodes through Netflix that way. Oh, cool. That's a good point, too. Good to know. So enough of the plug for Netflix and Hulu. We'll move on to the uh, story we're talking about. Quickly, production notes. The writer for this script is a guy named Norman Lessing. Of course, the story is still by Shimon Winselberg. We mentioned he's writing the first the story outlines for the first six episodes. Norman Lessing, interesting guy, wrote a lot of TV westerns and detective dramas like Bonanza, The Fugitive, Hawaii Five O. But even more interesting is he is a recognized master chess expert by the U.S. Chess Federation. So could explain some little scenes that we'll see later. The director is back from the first episode, Tony Leader. This will be his last episode to direct for Lost in Space. Producer Jerry Briskin, executive producer, of course, Erwin Allen. The show was filmed from the 10th through the 19th of August, 1965. Eight days, again, two days over the allotted six-day shooting schedule. So Lost in Space is falling further behind their production calendar. And this is one of the main reasons that uh, Irwin did not ask Tony Leader to come back for another episode of Lost in Space. It aired on Wednesday night, September 29th, 1965. No summer repeat for this episode. So if you missed it this time, you were out of luck. All the characters are featured, no guest stars, but a new character of sorts is introduced, and we'll get to that a little bit later. So let's start talking about the show properly. Uh, 
Act one, we get an opening introduction, a little bit shorter this time. I, I, I'm, I'm watching that, of course, now that I've noticed it. It was only about four and a half minutes long. And it opens with the narrator catching us up as the Jupiter 2 approaches an unknown planet that the Robinsons must land on to repair their damaged ship. And I love the way that they rec- reconnoiter this planet. This is an absolute uh, priceless, <laughs> uh, uh, skimpy special effect, but delightfully dated. Oh, they don't they don't they don't land. They they send someone out to <laughs> to fly down to the planet using a little parasol jet or something. It's almost like Mary Poppins in her umbrella. <laughs> Well, it's true, but the, the 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 interesting thing is right away, John is John is making that decision about who should go, and he logically says we should send our environmental control robot down to the planet to check out the environment. And uh, but Doctor Smith, who's engaged in a game of chess with the robot, conveniently informs John that uh, the robot's just not up to the job yet. He's he's still malfunctioning. It's a great moment when. John decides, well, you know, he can sick and he he turns one little dial and he stares at the face of the robot and he says, "He looks all right to me." <laughs> and, and then uh, Smith says something like, uh, "Try giving him an order." And of course, Smith is programmed to only respond to Smith's orders. So Robinson tells him to return to his pedestal and uh robot won't do anything. Go back to your pedestal. You see nothing. No, Dr. Robinson. I'm afraid he's not yet ready to tackle this job. I guess you're right. Yet someone has to go down and scout around. I can do it. Don, your job is here with the ship. Well, we have an environmental control expert on board. Why don't we send him? Quite right, Mrs. Robinson. I'd be the perfect choice. Unfortunately, my acute batophobia. What's that? An incurable fear of heights. Well, okay, so, you know, Dr. Smith regrets, but he cannot make that journey either. And Don can't go. It'd be silly to send, of course, it'd be silly to send Judy or Marine or the kids. So once again, Zorro, a.k.a. John, draws the short straw, and he's back out into space to make that reconnoitering trip. But he's not going to use the space yarn that always snaps. This time he has his what basically looks like one of those uh, uh, water soakers that you can get at Walmart to shoot people with water. It's you know uh, it's not even the length of a foot and a half, and it supposedly has enough compressed uh, gas in it to glide someone softly down to the planet from deep outer space. And I do mean deep outer space because when he goes outside that hatch, it's not like the planet is right below him. That planet is about the size of a, a silver dollar in the sky. I mean, right. it's, it's tens of thousands of miles away. And you know, they're like, I think we're going to be watching this for a long time. Yes. But no, it, he somehow gets there really, really quick. And the, the other eerie thing about it is that Don tells him, okay, now when you get out there, you want to use one blast. And then Robinson John says, um, well, how many do I use when I get to the, the atmosphere? <laughs> And Don says, I'll walk you through it. What if they lose communications? <laughs> I guess they're like, you, you really like to keep this guy in a short tether, don't you? I mean, he's going to be like, do I do it now? Do I do it now? And of course, later on, they do have interference. So that's the first thing he says. I'm picking up a lot of interference. It seems extremely dangerous. But, but, but don't worry. It, don't worry, Kurt. If anything goes wrong, they'll get back together using Rendezvous Plan A. <laughs> yes. What is Rendezvous Plan A? I keep wanting to hear about it. Uh, that and Phase 1 are my two favorite. Uh, buzz uh, phrases for this uh, episode phase one for the robot but we're here we will hear about that later now i want to mention again to me it's kind of a shame that tony leader didn't uh, direct more episodes because i thought the 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 director did a really good some of the shots are framed so beautifully the composition that in particular during this scene when there's a shot where john and Don's helping John get his space helmet on, and Smith is sort of in the foreground off to the right, not even really looking at them, looking off at a, at a, some other point, and he just makes these subtle little eye mo- motions while he's listening to that going on as if it's like, ah, yes, it's all it's all going perfectly according to plan. <laughs> well, it, it's like you said, it's obvious why he didn't get to direct again, because he's too good. He's too uh, good, you know, exactly. He, 
he's trying to make a movie. He's trying to do movie quality for a television show, and it shows. It really I mean, does. this is a beautifully directed episode. So are the other ones. But, you know, it takes two extra days. And Irwin is all about budget. And Irwin is all about television. And you could just see him, uh, you know, having a temper tandem with his yes man, you know, saying, you know, I don't want art. I want product, you know. <laughs> so, out he goes. And then with the next guy. Yes. Well, he. But he deserves a lot of credit. Oh, he does. He does. So. All right, so the, then you know, John's out there, and it goes to credits. We come back, and now we're following John's descent. It's kind of a clever way they wrote this, too. We're essentially just listening to it over the intercom. I mean, they cut away to John a couple times, and like you said, it seems like he's never more than 10,000 miles from that planet, even at the point where he's almost, you know, we find out the, uh, the rocket's malfunction, and Don's like, you're at 10,000 feet fire jets and it goes back to show john and he's still he's not one inch closer <laughs> Ten thousand feet yeah. you don't have to and be a pilot or an astronaut to know that at ten thousand feet you're well within the atmosphere now come on and did you not hear uh john once again rebuff uh don's uh suggestion on how to survive this thing he says not yet i want to get a closer look you know the last time don told you <laughs> i think you need to get back into the into the ship and uh john just basically says not yet i want to put up the antenna <laughs> you know? right. i mean that wasn't too long ago dude you almost died and here you are now telling the guy you don't even know how many blasts to use on your parajet and you're going to start telling the pilot <laughs> you know, no, I want to get closer. I want to get a closer look. Well, you can't get much more of a closer look than you know, falling like a rock to the planet, and that's what's going to happen here if you don't start following his suggestions. <laughs> yeah, well, he won't listen, will he? But I did think that was cool, the way so we're down below deck. We're listening to this over the interphone. Smith is playing chess with the robot calmly. Did you happen to notice that the robot has a little special claw to play chess with? It's actually... It has a little extra attachments on the end of it so that he can actually pick up the chess pieces and move that. But uh, No, uh-uh. Yeah, it's, it, it, it comes back. They play chess again, so keep an eye on it. Anytime the robot's playing chess, he has a, it, it almost looks like an extra pair of tongs on the end of his claw. But John, you're doing fine. Still can't see anything. Must be approaching first atmosphere layer. What was it they said about the fallen sparrow? William Shakespeare, 1564, 1616. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. My, you are a many splendor thing. They even programmed you with Shakespeare. Don't you ever stop to think? This is a complex game. One must look before one leaps. Samuel Butler, 1600, 1680. And look before you ere you leap. Or as you sow, ye are like to reap. I, I love the way that they're having this going on while Smith is listening to the suspense of you know the, right. the man, uh, John, uh, trying to go to the planet. But Smith knows that he sabotaged <laughs> the Paracel jet. <laughs> so it's, you know, he's doing a wonderful job of uh, pretending not to be surprised when this uh, happens. And uh, the moment things get dicey, what does Smith do? He uses the opportunity to try to cheat at chess. Right. <laughs> You're at 40,000 and accelerating too fast. Fire parajets. Not yet. Closer. Better chance to observe. Negative, negative. That move does not compute. A stupid oversight on my part. Release. Release. It does not compute. All right, all right. There. You're at 10,000 feet. Fire parajets to decrease acceleration. <laughs> and he tries to do a quick move, and of course, the robot catches him. <laughs> negative, negative. Does not compute. <laughs> right. Right. D- uh, John's parajets have malfunctioned. As you said, Smith has sabotaged them. And all of a sudden, we lose contact with John, and everybody's fearing the worst. And Smith set, rises and says, I suppose it's time for me to go console the widow. And up he comes. <laughs> and it's just a scene of absolute distress upstairs. And Will's practically crying, and he puts his hand on his shoulder. Will he say something consoling? No, no. It's more like, my dear boy, it's important to take our unfortunate slings and arrows of outrageous fortune with good cheer, you know, something to that effect. And Will is like, I- I'm trying to, Dr. Smith. You would think at that point, at least the mother would just like slap him silly or Don would sock him, but everyone's too 
um, broken up about it to even react. Yes, of all people, Dr. Smith is telling Will to be brave. I think that's <laughs> that's some rare <laughs> irony, isn't it? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Of course, now they're trying to decide what to do. Maureen and Don are all about, hey, we got to get down to the planet and try to find John. We assume, hopefully, that he's made it. But Smith... This is his moment to make his big bid for control of the ship. And he happens to mention to Maureen that, I believe the ship's about 200 pounds lighter now. So uh, Yes, we've gotten rid of that excess 200 pounds, which, of course, is exactly what supposedly Smith weighed. Now, right. you know, once again, I don't think Don weighs the same thing that Smith weighs. Smith was the 98-pound weakling, maybe 120. But, uh, you know, Don is, uh, not Don, but John is every bit of 200 pounds. That's that's a safe bet. Yeah, it's a safe bet. Of course, Smith wants to get back to those green hills of Earth. <laughs> and uh, he says, well, well, at least let's put it to a vote before we make a decision on this. And, and uh, of course, Don and Maureen outvote him. And not so fast, Smith says he has a proxy. Yes, and he, you know, this is beautiful dialogue because the way it's just uh, so nicely written where the music kicks in and up comes the robot up the elevator and <laughs> he comes forward and he does this little uh, song and dance about, you know, allow me to demonstrate your strong 200-pound uh, resistant helmet, you know, and the <laughs> robot s- smashes it like a little eggshell. And it's it's pretty scary. I mean, it's... Uh, you realize this guy's playing for keeps, and even Don is suitably um, taken back by it. Right. But he has a trick. He has a trick up his sleeve, Don does. And Don says, well, I, I guess I've got nothing. You know, I have to do what he wants. But he presses a button, and he throws the Jupiter II, you know, to a little bit of a, a swerve, and the centrifugal force throws Smith right into Don's arms, and he uh, does a wrestling lock around his neck like he's going to choke, choke hold him. And tells him to uh, send the robot back. And that's exactly what Smith reluctantly does. One more syllable. Just one more syllable. You only have six words, Smith. Send the robot back to his bay. And that's exactly what he does. That's exactly what he does. And so for the moment, at least, they're out of danger from the robot. And they decide the best thing to do with Smith is to put him on ice uh, back into the freezing tube. And Smith protests. And it's like he's trying to warn them about something else, which, which we'll find out about uh, in due course, but they, Don puts him in the freezing tube and he's frozen. I love the look on F- Smith's face as he's frozen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not only is that a beautiful look of disgust, but that whole sequence is wonderfully done. The special effects, the bright light as he gets frozen, the yes. music, it's, it's just wonderful. And, you know, Smith does an excellent freeze. I mean, I never see him move and it keeps coming back to him. And you know, it's, it's live because you're watching the Jacob's Ladder, although I guess the Jacob's Ladder could be, you know, done in post, <laughs> post uh, effect. But uh, there seems to be other stuff going on, and you know, people moving around. So when he freezes, he freezes completely still. And uh, like a, like you said, that's a great expression he has on his face. It never changes. <laughs> it's almost kind of comic, you know. It's sort of like if you're going to be frozen, you're not going to want to have that that expression on your face for however many years you're going to be frozen. But no, it's not, Smith does. It's not a good look. Could put some permanent lines around the crow's feet there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the reason, in fact, he was trying to warn them about something. And I, for me, we're basically into Act Two of the story now because we're transitioning into the the entire uh, landing on the planet sequence and they they discover pretty quickly that the the retro rockets aren't working properly and this is going to be a a rough landing and now, I couldn't quite understand what the point of sabotaging that was I mean if you're going back to earth you're going to need the retro rockets as well and and how would sabotaging them help you get back to earth because obviously if you're going to land anyway if your retro rockets aren't working you could crash and then you'd be dead you know that would kind of put your your master plan at risk too, but you know, try not to think these things out too Don't much. Don't think them out too much, but yeah, I, that, that does seem a little bit incongruous. I'm not sure exactly why, but Don says, you know, everybody go downstairs, get yourself strapped into those space lazy boys, and he's going to ride out the tra- the crash in the freezing tube as well. And then we lead into the whole sequence where the ship comes in, and I, this this is really a beautiful sequence. This entire uh, sequence where they're showing the the Jupiter two flying in over the its canyons and the rock formations and the and the the steam rising off and uh, I mean it, it's it's all done the old fashioned way with a model and uh, and live action but it's beautiful. 
Yes, it's perfect. I mean, I, the, the music's perfect. The sound effects, it's even got that... <laughs> you know, that you, you come to associate with uh, Lost in Space so much. That's in the background, too. And the, the music, I always compare to... Uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Mazorsky. It's uh, uh, Pictures on an Exhibition. It's got that type of... That flavor of music playing as this as this Jupiter 2 comes spiraling down into the into the desert and it's going at a high rate of speed i mean you you do feel uh sorry for these guys i mean they're strapped in their lazy boys the only lucky one on there is smith and and don i mean they're frozen they don't have to experience the pain of this <laughs> this high rate of speed crash but the girls and the the boy are sitting there on the little uh, uh recliners and they're looking nervously at each other and Penny and Will are smiling, you know, but the the older ones seem to kind of know their numbers are up, and they're putting on fake smiles. Right, they don't think they're going to survive. They think they, yeah, they're putting on a brave front. Now, you mentioned the music. I wanted to let you know this episode. The music for this episode was written by Johnny Williams, again the guy that wrote the uh, theme song for the show, and uh, as he was known then, John Williams, obviously, as we mentioned uh, of Star Wars and Jaws and Close Encounters, all that. I love. There's a lot of iconic uh, music that's written for this episode that will get used again and again. And that part where the the Jupiter Two is coming in for that crash landing and everything, I love that. I love that theme song. That mm-hmm. that it's great music. And then later on, when they're in the chariot bouncing around through the desert that's another uh, the chariot theme i call it i like that to, as well this entire sequence was part of the unaired pilot and luckily they filmed this in color because it does get this exact same sequence gets used at least two more times that i can recall and in fact there's another time where they use it and they actually reverse the film and show the jupiter 2 and go going back the other way to to uh, for a takeoff out of the planet but you know i don't mind i love watching it every time i see it so does that mean it's it's going it's in reverse it's, the the, yes. the windshield is facing <laughs> well, the back you can't see the windshield that clearly i suppose like <laughs> they pick and choose the shots they show there i guess they're at a far enough distance yeah, I never really looked to see if they had a rearview mirror. So, you know, <laughs> Don is quite a good pilot. I mean, you know, why not? I listened to a cast interview uh, a month or two ago when I was thinking about this. And Mark Goddard mentioned that he quickly gained the nickname among the filming crew of Crash West. They just always refer to it <laughs> as Crash because it seemed like every time they landed on a planet, it was always a crash landing. So I thought that was kind of cute. Well, uh, like he says in the this episode, anytime you can walk away from a landing, it's a good landing. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. So they cr- they survive the crash landing. The ship is a, a little bit worse for wear, but everybody unstraps, and Judy can't wait to get back upstairs and check on Doctor Smith. Oh no, I'm sorry, she's going to check on Don. <laughs> the future she forgets about Smith, right? The future she, Mrs. West, I should say. <laughs> I don't even think she checked on Will. I think she ran up there to check on Don first and foremost. So, but I mean that's typical sibling rivalry. So, not can't say that's not realistic. No, no. So they make an assessment and they decide, hey, let's go out there and start looking for John. And Don says, not so fast. We need to make sure that the atmosphere is breathable. We've got to make some sort of an environmental assessment. We'd like to send the robot, but uh, we're not so sure. And then good old Will comes up with the solution. Oh, yeah. He's uh, discovered he can imitate uh, Dr. Smith and uh, get the robot to do what he wants. Penny isn't buying it at first, but (laughs) when Will actually does it, you know, go out and check the temperature, my good man. Hey, I just thought of something. Once before, I figured out a way how to make the robot obey. I bet I could do it again. If nobody else can do it, what makes you think you can? You just watch me. Come on. Step forward, my mechanical friend. Good boy, Will. How did he do that? I don't know. Possibly something in the quality of his voice that strikes a responsive chord. Will, tell him to go out and make an environmental estimate. Sure. We need an environmental estimate, my good man. Go out and make it. Affirmative. Or 
my dear boy, I can't remember his exact phraseology, the robot does it, and uh, Will gives a big smirk to Penny, who kind of sticks out her tongue back at him. <laughs> but it's a cool effect, because not only does the robot kind of shuffle forward, it's one of the few moments where you actually see the robot's legs separate there in the center, in the middle. There's a, a tear or a cut down the middle of the uh, accordion-like rubber, and he's walking down, shuffling into the, into the sand. But uh, he stops, and a tiny little rectangle lifts up, and what looks like a, a, a long socket with some uh, uh, saw blade uh, jagged edges goes down into the dirt and pulls up a sample, and it's just like what you would see twenty or thirty years later, you know, on I don't know if it was Voyager or Pioneer or one of those NASA uh, probes sent up to Mars. That's basically what they did. So it was a it was a cool effect. Oh, it's a very cool effect. I I love that, and I also love the way they did it because it was another great directing shot. There was actually there was actually a, a little pause, and the camera pans down all the way down his legs to his feet, and then does a, a there's a there's a cutaway to a, a close up shot where that little panel opens up and the soil sampler comes out. It was cool. It was it was really neat, and uh, I'm sure the 1965 audience was just wild wowed by that because it's still impressive. Hmm. Anyway, they get the report back from the robot, and basically the, the atmosphere is breathable, but it is a bit cold outside, so they, they better break out the parkas. Yeah, 35 or 38 degrees. I mean, that's, that's pretty cold, all right. Yes, a cold desert. But it's not so cold that every time you know they come back and uh, have a discussion with the crew, they stand there with the, the doors wide open <laughs> and just talk in the airlock. Right. You know, no one seems to notice the temperature then. So they got to break out the chariot, put it together, and get going. Now, by the way, where do they keep that? Ch- that chariot's pretty big. My wife was mentioning that. She goes, where's the garage for that chariot? Because that thing's pretty large. Yeah, you would think wherever it is would be parked right next to the space pod, which would make a lot more sense to if you're trying to find somebody. <laughs> do an aerial reconnoitering, you know? Uh, but no, they, they, don't, they haven't found the space pod yet, and no one seemed to brief them that it's actually included in the, <laughs> in the ship. Or like we said earlier, maybe they just slipped it in at the last minute and forgot to tell the Robinsons about it, and they could explain that away as the extra, extra tonnage that created them, made them go off course. <laughs> but uh, no, it appears out of nowhere, and if you look at it, you can see that there's no tire tracks leading up to the chariot no so it's like it got set down from the sky maybe a giant cyclops set it down or they assembled it right there because they didn't drive it around from the back or anything no but you know don't ask too many questions a little digression uh mark cushman's book uh erwin allen's lost in space an authorized biography talks about it there were actually three chariots built only one of them was full size there were two miniatures the full-size chariot was built on the frame of a 1964 Thiokol Snowcat Sprite, and they took the the existing cab off and then made a uh, plexiglass uh, and steel tube chassis to put on top of it. And I think it looks pretty go- cool. I, I the chariots the chariots a neat piece of lost in space uh, technology, if you ask me. Oh yeah, and it's got that. Well, I, I guess it's supposed to be like a radar thing. It right. Looks, it looks basically like a 1960s television camera, you know, with a big big lens there. But you know. You keep wondering, if they've got a force field, why don't they put the force field in that chariot? Because that's where they always need it. You know, something's <laughs> going to be attacking them, and it's got this big piece of hardware right there. Uh, why not put a little portable force field in it? But um, I guess that'd take a little of the su- suspense away. But it's a pretty cool radar effect. Uh, it's not the conventional sweep around. It only kind of focuses on what's directly ahead of them, and that's how they know that... Uh, they're they're honing in on what they think is perhaps their father, although they make it quite clear. Don keeps reminding Maureen, you know, Maureen, it, it may be him, but it may not be. You know, it's sort of like, okay, you've told me that several times. Right. I know he may be dead. You know, you, right. I get it. So right. please stop telling me that until you find him. Well, they they go out searching in the chariot, and they're going through all that uh, desert area that was filmed out in Red Rock Canyon. Uh, the Trona Pinnacles are in the background, so it's very scenic view that they're showing there as the chariots bouncing around and they're bouncing around in it of course later in the studio they're doing a little rear projection screen work there but it it all matches very well and and i wanted to mention also this is the first time we get a a costume change for the robinsons they're finally out of those reynolds wrap spacesuits and they're wearing their regular velour 
futuristic space fatigues and parkas, as they call them. Uh, if you ever see the, what the colors look like, they don't really translate that great in black and white. They tend to all look sort of a, a beige-ish color, but they're actually pretty cool. It's, it's nice to see them out of the Reynolds wrap anyway. Well, if you're a stickler for the transition of going from deep space to a close-up of the, the planet, you're going to love the way that one moment they're in this completely arid desert, and then the <laughs> next moment they're in this like tropical, uh, you know, it's just lush Amazonian <laughs> atmosphere with ferns everywhere. And yes, there's no transition at all, <laughs> basically, yes. We must be getting close. The plants are here. <laughs> well, they're getting a signal. Judy, Judy says, we're getting a signal. We've got to stop. So they stop the chariot. And Don gets out to investigate, and he's got a, he's got a pretty cool laser rifle now. I like that laser rifle. Yes, it's got it's got some umph. This is the exact opposite of the laser rifle that the guard had that that was guarding the Jupiter too. Yeah, it's the not a golf go- club. Yes, it's not a <laughs> the golf, golf club. club with the isolate uh, is, uh, insulators on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to need that uh, laser rifle because he's about to encounter his first alien life form. He thinks it might be John, but he's not sure, and he just wants to make make sure he's got uh, some protection there. There's a tree shaking, and he pulls the branches back, and who's sitting there? It's Lancelot Link, it's- secret <laughs> chimp. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which I think was another—this uh, is probably the same chimpanzee that was on that Saturday morning show on a different network. I mean, okay, granted, they all kind of look alike, but uh, he has a—we're not supposed to notice because he has like a little hairy helmet on his head with some pointed ears. This is the the chimpanzee version of a Vulcan, I guess. <laughs> the bloop. They call him the bloop, and he makes that blooping sound effect as he's there. But he's really cute, and you're right, actually. The little trivia for you. Debbie was a very famous acting chimp. And Debbie was actually the chimp's real name. She appeared in Beverly Hillbillies, Doc Tari, and yes, Lancelot Link. I uh, knew it. Yes. And I didn't read it anywhere. I just said, that that looks like... It's very oh, familiar. Oh, wow. Later, there's a kind of a funny story they mention in the book as well, that there was a time where Angela Cartwright's little brother was b- visiting the set, and Debbie bit the little brother of Angela, and the trainer actually had the teeth extracted of Debbie, which I think is a little bit extreme. I mean, oh yeah, nobody got hurt or anything, but it was like, oh no, we can't have any of this. I guess perhaps they were worried about a insurance liability or something like that. But can you believe they would take the teeth out of that poor little monkey just for taking a nip? Well, the the, the kid probably provoked it. I mean, if the kid's right. anything like mine, I mean, right. it was poking at the chimpanzee. You know, eat the banana, eat the banana. He deserved it. He had it coming to him. But no, that's pretty terrible. And think about it. I mean, one of the famous things that this chimpanzee was always doing was mugging for the camera with its teeth. You know, giving these big toothy grins. What's it going to do now without right. its teeth? You know, right. a gummy gummy bear or whatever. It right. just didn't work. Right. But uh, oh well. Yeah. Well, I thought there was another funny bit right there when when Don brings the monkey back to the the rest of the family. And of course, Maureen's just devastated. This is not the husband she wanted to have a fight with. So and Penny's <laughs> Penny's pl- just so happy a monkey yeah. like that. And she goes, she "Oh, lights I, up. <laughs> can I have him?" And Maureen's like, "No, you may not." For Pete's sake, what's that? This is what we picked up in the scanner. I'm sorry, Maureen. Oh, he's darling. May I have him? No, you may not. Come on. Come on, fella. Beat it. You may have it if you wish. No, Mom. I don't want him. Really, I don't. Get it for her, will you, Don? It's all right, dear. You may have it. Come on, Charlie. Looks like you found yourself a home. I'm going to call you Debbie. Come on, kids. Let's go. Come on. Okay, now, you know, I'm just pointing this out. 
when she actually sees her father, she does not light up the same way she did when she saw that monkey. No. Okay. She thought the father was dead. He's not dead. He's alive. And, you know, she's mildly uh, glad to see him, but it's not anything like the love look that she gave when she saw that monkey. <laughs> Dad, couldn't you have been a monkey, exactly. please? I mean, uh, it's almost like, well, if he is dead, at least we got a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> See, we don't have to waste the space, Lazy Boy. After all, we still got someone to replace it. Now, you know, that was another one of those things where I just don't think the family was thinking in terms of space biology very much. It's one thing to go running around on a planet without your visor and your helmet and your spacesuit on worrying about germs. But now you're going to take an actual space animal on board and make it part of your family and they never check it out for any diseases or anything heaven forbid at very least you might make the chimpanzee sick but you know oh well and and this is the first one too there's other animals and we're going to see plenty of them uh penny's basically the equivalent of ellie may from (laughs) the beverly hillbillies you know it's got varmints coming out of the wazoo she loves the critters yep yep and they always have like one little thing different you know exactly like the the hairy helmet for the chimpanzee (laughs) and later on it's like a galapagos turtle with giant thorns on it (laughs) oh it's great well, they no John, but they don't leave us in suspense before they break to commercial because the camera tracks back towards the bushes and we see a great reveal. John is in fact alive. He's down in a in a uh, in a crater, and uh, well, actually, I'm not let sure me point we... out, you don't see that he's alive. That's he's right, totally still. So he's there still... is that suspense. We're wondering, is he dead or alive? But that's an effective shot because it's like one moment, okay, you know, the mother caves and says, "No, I want you to go ahead and take it." And so she takes the pet, and then as the little kind of moment of light mood is completely compromised, as we, why are we panning into that pit? Oh, there he is. And he looks he looks pretty dead, actually. I mean, he's kind of in that position uh, that you always see uh, chalked out on the ground when someone's been murdered. You know, one arm kind of upward and the other arm down. You're right. <laughs> it doesn't look very good. You're right. You're right. We actually don't know, and I, I was jumping ahead there. So it does leave us in a little bit more suspense. And that basically wraps up Act 2. So now we come back from commercial, and not only is John in a crater, he's in an electrified crater. The worst kind. The yeah. worst kind, and Maureen's, Maureen doesn't know where he is, but she's making a call over the communicator. John, if you're out there, we're going to keep searching for you. And now we get a scene where John actually moves, and he's trying to grab that communicator that is just out of reach. But before he can touch it... <laughs> It explodes. Oh, rats. Yeah, I'm always, I call that the uh, Space Ghost Reach. You know, uh, if you remember Space Ghost cartoon, every time he needed to get out of a fix, he would just, he'd try to reach for, if I could just reach my power bands, <laughs> and it'd be the, uh, three inches away, and then like the last reach, it would suddenly reach four inches, and he'd touch it. <laughs> In this case, just before he got to that little moment where he's about to reach it, then it does the effect. Well, it gets electrified, and that effect isn't too whoopy at moment. At that particular moment, you're going, you know, eh, this is looks a little cheesy. But then everything around him starts getting electrified, including the dead tree. So it, the, the entire tree starts lining up, and it does get a little scary at that point and dicey as they try to rescue him. Oh, it is. Well, they're not aware that he's alive yet. Don cranks up the chariot, and he starts to back up, and Judy looks down and says, wait, I'm still getting a signal. So Don shuts off the chariot. He races back out. He goes that extra 10 feet or however much farther he had to go, and he sees that John is, in fact, down in the canyon or the crater, and he calls for help back to the chariot. Hey, we need a rope to get John out of there and send the robot with a rope. But the robot... He's acting funny. Yeah, he needs to have a little uh, encouragement from Will, but then another phase of his orders to go check on Smith every hour on the hour. Every hour uh, on the hour. Kicks in, and he disappears, and Will calls out to him, but uh, to no avail. And uh, Judy grabs the rope and runs uh, runs to, to see her real, the one that she's most interested in, her father, no, uh, Don, <laughs> that would be, uh, to give Don the rope. And uh, you know, it helps the father out, too. So I guess every it's a win-win situation. Well, it takes them a little effort, but they get, they get John out of, the, out of the crater. 
And when he gets back up there, of course, it's a it's a it's a happy reunion between Maureen and John and Judy and everybody's smiling. And Don's sort of sitting off to the side. Uh, Nobody's been giving me any (laughs) any attention. I just rescued him. But, you know, uh. (laughs) and he he mentions that he fell the entire way except like the last hundred feet. Okay, (laughs) you know, I guess. He's not familiar with this concept of reentry. You know, I I know that those are very futuristic uh, Reynolds wrap uh, spacesuits, but I don't think they can handle the reentry friction. And uh, Ray Bradbury did a story. I can't remember the title of it. I, when they adapted to radio, I think they call it Starbright, and another title was Hallucination Orbit. But someone's spaceship gets blown up, and they basically are drifting through space. And at the very very end, they reenter the Earth. And it's their, the, the man's son who's looking up at the horizon and sees this little falling star. <laughs> and he says, look, Mommy, a falling star. Oh, that's wonderful. Bill, why don't you make a, a, make a wish? You know, that's really how uh, little Will would have seen his, his father in real life with that right. parasol thing. Yeah. It would have been a falling star burning up in reentry. And he could have made a wish, so it still would have been a happy one. Maybe we'll get back to Earth someday. But... Uh, no, this this one had a, a true happy ending in that, for yes. some reason, that Paracel saved the day. Parajet's 100 feet above the ground. Yes, that was that was a hoot. Uh, well, I, I prefer calling it the par- Parasol, you know, because it's like one of those little umbrellas. <laughs> parasol. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have a little uh, little quick uh, powwow there, and they all seem to to agree that uh, that malfunction of the of the Parasols and the ship had a malfunction as well. There's only one person that could be at fault for that, and that's Smith. How is everybody? Well, everybody's fine. We had a bit of a rough landing, too, though. We had trouble with our rockets, too. Same as you. Dr. Smith. Uh Uh-huh. I thought so. Come on, the reception committee's waiting. (laughs) All right. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did you do with the doctor? Don't worry about Dr. Smith. He's in the deep, deep freeze. Yeah, and they are suitably uh, disheartened to see that he has escaped from the freeze tube when they got back because the robot has gone back and, and released him. Uh, but uh, you know, at that moment, John looks like he's ready to go beat the, the tar out of Smith because he's figured out that Smith is uh, monkeying around with his, with his, uh, his little jet thing. And uh, he's ready to go beat, get a little stew uh, beating there. But Smith quickly turns the tables and actually Don says, not so quick, he's got control of the robot. And that's when Smith gives Smith his opening. Oh, dear sir, don't worry. There's nothing to fear. I've had a great, a great change of heart while I was inside that freeze tube. <laughs> oh, and the, the look on John's face. It's, he can't act because he does look, you know, um, amused. Just, he's not buying it. And at one point, you know, he says, Smith says something along the lines of, you know, I've, I saw my whole life flash before me as I was inside that freeze tube. <laughs> and John says something, well, that must have been a pretty gory spectacle. <laughs> yeah, those were some great lines. Well, I want to talk about before we get back to the ship, because the, like you said, the robot has gone back to the ship to do Operation Rescue. And I really liked the bit where he he got Dr. Smith out of the freezing tube. Because again, this this made no sense to me. He Instead of just pressing a button, which I'm sure is right there, he the robot decides, oh, I've got to, I've got to basically break the, the freeze tube to get Dr. Smith out. And it seems to be a little bit more of a problem for Dr. Smith because he sort of falls out right into the robot's arms and the robot starts shaking him back and forth, back and forth. And this is not, this is not to Jonathan Harris's liking whatsoever. Yes, it's totally within uh, Smith's character, though. I mean, he's he's had his life saved by the robot, and he's completely dismissive and angry about it. You know, you tin-plated twit, what are you doing? <laughs> you could have broken my leg. <laughs> well, he finally shakes himself off, and he gets a progress report uh, from the robot. We've landed. Uh, the, ro- the Robinsons aren't here, and Smith decides that he and the robot now truly do have a voting majority, and he's... He's decided that he and the robot should just basically commandeer the Jupiter 2 and head back to those green hills of Earth. And but the that, robot points out that he doesn't vote. He has no free will. And Smith <laughs> says, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. It's vastly overrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
he wants to say goodbye to this colorful <laughs> island in space, but uh, unfortunately, robots don't know how to fly spaceships. So Doctor Smith, uh, Doctor Smith is going to have to find another way to get back to Earth. But in the meantime, but the family we get a wonderful view of the the Smithian temper tantrum. Though I mean, he's literally kicking the robot and, right and hurtling all sorts of uh, insults at him. <laughs> and of course, the the robots completely unfazed by it all but uh he's just basically having a conniption fit (laughs) right well the family we cut back to the family driving the chariot back to the (laughs) back to the jupiter too this is another funny scene i thought it was really (laughs) the giant tumbleweed (laughs) the giant tumbleweed well it's either an i we were discussing this it's either a giant electrical tumbleweed or could it possibly be a hairball coughed up by the giant? I don't know which one. <laughs> I don't uh, know which one it is. That would be better still. I, I never thought of that. Uh, <laughs> electromagnetic hairball. Uh, it's a whatever it is. It's giant and it rolls in, and it makes a pretty cool sound too. Uh, they're basically driving, and uh, I think it's Don or maybe John. He's looking back, telling somebody, "Oh, look forward," you know. And you hear that. You hear this noise before right. he swings back to look at the the forward windshield and then this thing is right on him and it hits them but it's not the impact that does the damage it's the electro charge that apparently burns out all the uh, transistors or whatever they use in the future i guess it should be ic chips or better but uh, they they now have to get out and walk and will offers to fix it but John basically says, "No, we're we're going to take it. We're going to get back to the ship right away." Right. Will, of course, you know this is going to come back to haunt us because he's just so fixated. I know I can fix this, but no, we better get back to the ship before nightfall. We cut back to the Jupiter too, and as you said, Doctor Smith is having a conniption fit over the fact that the robot is unable to take the Jupiter two back into orbit and head back to Earth, and he. At one point, he actually says, "Where's that laser pistol?" And the robot, uh-huh. yes, goes yeah, the robot. This. The robot basically says, "You know, uh, activating self-defense mechanism, forty thousand volts <laughs> activated." <laughs> and he starts, you know, even demonstrates the electro right. voltage going between his claws. And there's a sudden change of heart for Mister uh, Doctor Smith. <laughs> this is, Jonathan Harris just chewed this scene up when he starts calming the robot back down with all those soothing syrupy words. There, there now. <laughs> Who wouldn't love you? <laughs> you misunderstand. But uh, uh, Dr. Smith always knows how to land on his feet. But he has, he's already told the robot, you know, now that this is a plan B, basically to get rid of everyone other than Major West. And he, he tells the robot, since the others serve no purpose, they need to be liquidated. <laughs> And the robot says, destroyed. And he goes, no, 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 that's far too harsh of a word. I prefer the word eliminated. <laughs> I know, that's great. But he does say, that's too bad about young Will, though. I really wanted to teach him to play chess. And the robot pipes in, I play chess. <laughs> <laughs> but you always win. I like to win. <laughs> Uh, just at that moment, the robot informs them that the Robinsons are approaching, and Dr. Smith looks out the portal. I love this line. Robinson alive? Impossible. But no matter. It may actually make it easier for them to believe in my sudden reformation. Watch and learn. St. Zachary the First. Yeah, I think that that's one of those lines that crops up in another science fiction later on. You, Flash Gordon alive? <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> no, they, it's a classic line. Well, they don't buy it though. They're, like I said, they're uh, he's fit to be tied. Uh, John is at first, but uh, he slowly uh, wins him over by suggesting he could still be useful because he can get the robot to do another environmental survey, and uh, he points out don says well we've already done that ah but did you do it at nighttime Mm. oh no he didn't do it at night he's got a point there so uh they send they agree to allow him to send the robot out to do a nighttime so we never hear the results of that but we'll find out soon enough that things do get pretty bad at nighttime well they do it's cold during the day yeah yeah well and of course the the part that i liked about that little scene too was don says you'd leave yourself 
uh, defenseless, and Dr. Smith says, the virtuous need no defense. (laughs) And the look on Don's face is pretty priceless. And Uh, as they leave, this is the first time that anybody on board has noticed that, hey, it's 35 degrees out. Maybe we need to shut the door behind us. They're all born in barns, apparently. So... Well, another th- another thing I want to just mention. I'm sorry to jump in there, but uh, the uh, the the book talks about already. We're this is the third episode of the of the series, and Jonathan Harris is already having sidebars with the script editor Tony Wilson, saying, "Well, I don't really like the way this dialogue is written. At, written, uh, this blocking needs to be changed." And the other cast members catch on pretty quickly that he's basically rewriting the scenes and the dialogue so that uh, uh, they favor Doctor Smith. And you know, I can imagine why they wouldn't like it, but I actually, th- <laughs> I actually think it's good because these scenes where Smith is in and the camera ends with Smith's look on his face—I mean, he just plays that to the to the to the hill. I love it. You have to wonder. You know, did Smith, I mean, you know that he came up with all the juicy insults. I mean, that, that just that's a given. But did he also come up with the juicy insults against his own character? <laughs> that's what I find fascinating because Don has a, has a priceless one, too. He says, don't, don't believe him. He's as slippery as a bucket full of eels. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if Smith actually wrote that line? You know? That would be great to know. That's a good line, though. It really is. Well... Anyway, the robot's out doing the environmental survey, and we're drawing to a close of the episode. John's back at the desk with the diary, writing in his diary. diary. Guess what happened on our planet today? We landed on a new one. Never been here before. It's pretty interesting. Oh, boy. They're finishing up dinner, and all of a sudden, where's Will? Well, he's not here. He's not where he's supposed to be. Oh, my goodness. You could have seen this coming from a mile away. Guess where he is? Back of the chariot. You know, a big, just for all those future fathers out there, uh, let me just say that if you notice one of your children is missing during the meal, it's probably a good idea to start looking at them, looking for them at that point. You know, don't wait until the meal's over and people are cleaning up. If they're not there to get fed, that's usually a sign that they're just not there, especially if it's a boy. Uh, he just wasn't trying to get out of washing the dishes. He was up to something else. He's he's determined to fix that chariot. And it's another example of Will disobeying, as John says, I gave strict orders. No one was to leave the ship at night. But apparently those orders don't apply to Will because sure enough, he's out there. And they're talking about this, and Dr. Smith immediately gets concerned. And this was played well, too, I thought, because we already foreshadowed that he he's kind of taken a shine to Will. They seem to be two peas in a pod when they're going together and when Dr. Smith sort of gives the game away slightly by saying, well, well, the, you don't understand the robots out there. <laughs> well, and we, we know that. And <laughs> well, yeah, it's, could, it's just that he might dangerous. find will. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and I guess he'll bring him back, <laughs> but it won't be alive. Yes. No, he doesn't say that. He just thinks that. Right. And uh, then we cut to see Will back at the chariot, and Will uh, speaking out loud to himself. I guess it was wrong. Everybody thought I could fix it. Boy, it's cold. I gotta get back to the ship. What? Essential personnel are found alone. Destroy. When essential personnel are found alone, destroy. Destroy. That was the line. Well, and and he, it, he it, wants to make sure Will knows he's going to die, so he demonstrates it by killing yet another dead plant. You know, we've got a, a dead tree here, and we're going to shock it. I don't know why someone would demonstrate, but I guess maybe he wants to warn Will just to, you know, ramp up that fright factor a little bit. So well, he zaps the dead tree and it, it blows up. Well, it's scary. I mean, yes, it's that, that I noticed that too. It's a little silly. Why does he blow the tree up? But, but it's scary. Those lightning bolts look pretty real. And Will all of a sudden realizes he's in danger. So it's no time to negotiate. He's climbed up to the top of the chariot. And as the episode closes, we're left watching in horror 
as the robot's getting closer and closer. Have you ever noticed, this is like one of the few times when Will Robinson is in danger, and the robot's there, and the robot doesn't say, danger, Will Robinson. You know? <laughs> but uh, the music is so great. I mean, that's, that's what really, ma- you don't have to even see the screen. You could just hear the music, and you're thinking, whatever's going down here now, this somebody's about to really get hurt. There's, there's some severe threat going down. Oh, yes. And, uh, they, they, they really successfully convey that in these first few episodes uh, more, more than anything else. First off, I mean, he is in danger, but to add that, that element of music with everything else that's going down, it's really exciting. And I can imagine the cliffhanger must have been pretty hard to tolerate for a whole week waiting to find out if the little kid was going to be shocked to death by that menacing robot and remember that the robot at this point there is nothing sympathetic about him there, there's nothing you're thinking he, he looks cool but you're also thinking he looks dangerous because he is oh he's dangerous and he's no he's a villain he's still a villain and dr smith is still quite the villain so we're still we're still placed in peril and tension and as you say this episode closes out. I can't believe that, you know, 50 minutes have already gone by. And sorry, kids, right at that critical moment, we get the freeze frame reminder to tune in next week as we go to the end credits for Island in the Sky. And so, Kurt, for my money, I, I, I thought this was another great episode. I, I thought they did a great job putting the story together, utilizing those shots from the pilot and the, the Dr. Smith and robot bits and and, you know, we got to see the bloop. So what what was your opinion overall? Well, um, I'm a sucker for the Cyclops. I keep waiting for the Cyclops. But I was completely distracted by the, the chemistry of Dr. Smith and the robot and the danger that the family was from him. I mean, he completely upstages everything. He upstages the, the alien monkey. He upstages <laughs> the electrified dead tree. He even upstages the, upstages the electrified tumbleweed, if that's possible. Right. Uh, so he, he, he makes this episode, and he really does establish himself as basically the star of the series in right. this episode, in my opinion, my humble opinion. Uh, you're just like, you're thinking, this guy is really creepy yes he he's the most deadly menace that the robinsons face at this point by far and uh, by extension uh, the robot is his his agent in that so you're right the 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 electrified craters the the tum- the electrical tumbleweeds the bloop none of those are <laughs> as dangerous to the robinsons as Dr. Smith. So uh, I liked it. I really did. It's a totally different vibe from the previous episode, but it was entertaining from start to finish. And I don't remember any parts in this story that seemed like they were padded. Did you? No, no. It went at a, I, I, I'm trying to, there usually is something in there that has a padded scene, but the only thing I can imagine that would possibly qualify as that would be the um, chariot, you know, driving around in the, in the desert. They could, they can make that as long or as short as they want to in sure. order to fit it perfectly in, you know, for the amount of commercials that they want. I think back in those days, it was 52 minutes of actual airtime, if mm. I remember correctly. And, of course, they keep whittling it back, you know, to less and less and less to, to squeeze in more and more commercials. But I think of the actual action time, it was, a you know, a pretty full 52 minutes. And it, it goes at a fast clip, and there's not a whole lot of uh, excess fat at all. You you know when you watch episodes like this, you realize Lost in Space could not have been done in a half hour format. It just wouldn't work. No, great. Well, I got nothing to add. So unless you do, Kurt, that will wrap up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the fourth episode of Lost in Space, titled "There Were Giants in the Earth." You'll finally get your Cyclops as you've been waiting for, Kurt. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I can't wait either. I love the Cyclops. So until then, take care. And as far as uh, how big is that Cyclops? Well, just remember the tumbleweed was only its hairball. <laughs> <laughs> see you next week. All right. Same we'll time, you. same station. Yes, we'll see you next week. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. 
please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.